Good evening to everyone. It's my pleasure to welcome all of you here on behalf of UNIC uh, to the fifth AI Science Cafe. My name is Przemysl Pawa. I'm the director of the Czech Center in, in London. Let me give a sentence of introduction to UNIC. Uh, UNIC is an association of the European Culture Institute and embassies in the UK. It's the main aim to promote European culture and art in mutual collaboration with the UK partners. Also recently, UNIC and its members have explored and expanded their programs into science and innovation, addressing topics of advanced technology, in particular, the artificial intelligence. So in follow-up to previous discussions on AI, ethical aspects, impacts on mobility, cybersecurity, and other fields, today we will explore AI contribution to human creativity, performing art, and theater in particular. So artistic and creative activities have been ever since considered to be solely human domain with AI having very limited contribution to the creative process. However, as you all know, today there are AI algorithms that can compose, for instance, classical music, just recently completed Beethoven 10th symphony, or can write a theater play, such as when a robot writes a play that was premiered earlier this year in Prague, capturing attention from various media outlets, uh, among others, Guardian or BBC. So undoubtedly, this trends opens discussion on topics such as, will the AI enrich artistic creative process? Can there be a genuine and original input? Shall the AI be considered threat or value to the performing art and theater? So these and other questions will be addressed and explored this evening. So I'm very pleased that we will do so with such a representative international panels of speakers from various professional backgrounds, AI practitioners, artists, university experts from the United Kingdom, Poland, Germany, and the Czech Republic. So with that, I'm very delighted to introduce the chair of the panel, distinguished Tracy Harwood, who is a professor of digital culture at the Institute of Creative Technology at the Dumont-Ford University. Tracy is also a director of the university's usability lab and among others, director and co-founder of the award-winning Art AI Festival. So before I turn the floor to Tracy, we'd like to thank and acknowledge a great support organizing the AI Science Cafe to the Polish Culture Center, namely to Karolina Gorazda, and also to the Goethe Institute and the Czech Center. So with that, I wish you inspirational and interesting discussion. And Tracy, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Prim. Thank you, I really appreciate that. Um, and, and thank you for that um, uh, wonderful introduction. I'd like to begin um, with thanks to the Polish Cultural Institute, the Goethe Institute and the Czech Center in London for organizing this fascinating event. Um, and of course, thanks to you, our audience, for joining us this evening, um, uh, which is focused, as Prem said, on AI and theatre. We have three great speakers for you, um, uh, whom I'll introduce in just a minute. Um, uh, for the, the proceedings this evening, um, each of our speakers will present their creative practice to you for around 10 to 15 minutes before we do a, a Q&A session in which you are very welcome to ask questions. Um, in terms of procedure, just drop those questions to me in the chat and I'll endeavour 
to pick them up as we begin the discussion. So let me just now introduce the, the three speakers. Um, firstly, uh, we will hear from Rudolf Rosa. Uh, Rudolf is leading an experimental theatrical project called Theatre uh, and is a researcher at the Faculty of Mathematics and Physics at Charles University in Prague. He is an expert in multilingual language processing and is a robo-psychologist. Just sounds like an amazing thing to work on. He has uh, participated in many national and international research projects and supervises several theses in language generation. The theater, which is the word theater with AI in the middle of it, is an experiment that attempts to explore if a robot can write a theater play. And I'll leave uh, Rudolf to explain more about how it does that and how well it does at it. Um, suffice to say, the project is a collaboration of computational linguists with theatre experts and importantly commemorates 100 years since the premiere of the first theatre play about robots, which is Rossum's Universal Robots by Czech writer Karel Čapek. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Uh, the project has already produced its first theatre play script uh, titled AI When a Robot Writes a Play, which was 90% generated by the Theatre Robot 1.0 system that that project has developed. Uh, the play premiered in February this year online to an international audience of thousands. Our second speaker will be Piotr Mirovsky, who is a, a theatre actor and a researcher in AI. He co-founded Human Machine and Improbotics, the world's first AI-enabled improv companies that experiment with AI for artistic, human and machine-based co-creation. He has created shows featuring robots and chatbots uh, that have toured internationally from comedy, pubs, uh, to international theater and improv festivals such as Edinburgh Fringe, Brighton Fringe, Online Paris Fringe, and my own Art AI Festival, which is um, him performing behind me here. Um, the work has featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, New Scientist, Sunday Times, ABC News, Bloomberg, RT1, and, and more. Uh, now, Piotr has a diploma in acting from the London School of Dramatic Art and has performed on stage. In his other life, he works as a staff research scientist at DeepMind. His current areas of focus include navigation-related research, scaling up autonomous agents to real-world environments, and weather forecasting, which you've probably seen in the news fairly recently. Uh, he is the author of over 60 papers uh, that have been published in such prominent journals as Nature, Genome Biology and Clinical Neurophysiology, and has presented at ICLR and Neurix events. He studied computer science in France and obtained his PhD, receiving an outstanding dissertation award in computer science at New York University under Professor Yann Lacoon, whom uh, we know as one of the godfathers of AI. And our third speaker will be Marcel Kanapke, whose organization CyberAlba explores uh, virtual reality theater experiences. Marcel lives and works in Berlin and is one of um, one half of the company alongside Bjorn Lengers. Uh, their first performance of CyberAlba in VR, which is based on Friedrich Schiller's The Robbers, was in May 2016, and they have since worked with other theatre creators and artists adding to their repertoire, including 
mixed reality work for classical theater, opera, and ballet, and also as downloadable VR experiences. Marcel's focus is on the fusion of advanced technologies with architectures of the human narrative, covering VR, AI, uh, the future architecture of narratives, as well as archaeology and, and reality reconstruction. His work has won international awards and been shown in events such as the Milan Triennial and Berlin Festival. Uh, recent works include Cyber Ballet and a theatre work called Prometheus Unbound, which is entirely based on artificial intelligence. Currently, he is working on the second version of a real-time GPT-3 driven theatre piece called The Human Being is Another. So let me hand over firstly to Rudolf um, to begin this evening's talks. Um, each speaker will hand over to the next and then I'll pick back up and attempt to um, uh, corral the discussion this evening. So um, over to you, Rudolf. Thank you very much. Uh, good evening to everyone. So let me uh, share my screen. Yeah. So uh, thank you for the introduction. So yeah, as you heard, I represent the theater project, uh, which uh, combines experts both on uh, computational linguistics, but also uh, theater experts. So, uh, so I'm just one member of, of a uh, larger team, of course. And so let's first uh, view a short uh, two-minute uh, cut from, uh, from the theater play, AI When a Robot Writes a Play. So uh, so what you've seen 
uh, is a part of uh, a theater play uh, where, as uh, you already heard, just 10% of the script was uh, written by a human and 90% was generated automatically, uh, specifically by the GPT-2 language model, which we'll hear uh, a bit more today about. Uh, so uh, it's uh, a one hour play, so something like 60 minutes. Uh, as you could hear, it's in Czech language. Uh, so we also employed some automated translation because the GPT model works in uh, English only. And something will also uh, be a recurring theme today is that uh, we use a human in the loop approach where we use uh, some artificial intelligence system, but it cooperates uh, with a human in a sensible way. Uh, so uh, specifically, uh, the human uh, presents some, some starts of the scenes and, and then controls the generation process uh, to make sure that, uh, that the script tries to make some sense at least a bit. And uh, it's important to say that in our work, uh, we just uh, generate the script uh, and only the, the dialogues of the characters. So the script then goes to a dramaturge, a director, the actors, who uh, are free to, well, uh, interpret it in their own way, but, but uh, they have to keep to uh, the generated text. So, uh, so if you've seen the play or if you manage to see the play, then really what you hear in the dialogue, so 90% of it was generated uh, automatically. And uh, well, because uh, it all uh, kind of uh, goes around these, these language models, uh, so as, as the computational linguist uh, here, uh, I will try to say briefly what a language model does because it's such a fascinating tool that uh, allows us to generate these, uh, these texts. Uh, so the task uh, it solves is uh, rather simple. Uh, so imagine you have a sentence and you have to think of the word that should complete the sentence. So for example, I woke up in the morning and went to the something, definitely uh, come up with some words. Uh, maybe I went to the kitchen or I went to the bathroom or maybe to the cinema, maybe not in the morning, maybe to the horse, probably not, but if you have a horse, then why not? So, so that's the task a language model does. Uh, you have a text and it tries to uh, generate some continuation of the text. And the main idea behind doing that is no magic. Uh, it just learns from existing texts. It shows up that uh, people have produced tons of texts already. Uh, so we could just take the text of Wikipedia and look how often do these words follow each other. So if I have went to the, how often do I see went to the bathroom and how often I see went to the horse. And unsurprisingly, 42 times you see went to the bathroom in Wikipedia and four times went to the horse on Wikipedia. So the model can easily learn that it's more likely to say, I went to the bathroom than I went to the horse, but went to the horse is still an option. Or went to the cinema and went to the kitchen. Uh, that's not so clear which one is more frequent, but still it's, it's the cinema. So more often you would go to the cinema than to the kitchen. So, so that's the task. And um, that's uh, the main idea how the model does it. It learns from text how we put words uh, together and then it can put the words together in a similar way. Uh, so specifically we use uh, language models from the GPT family. 
they can generate texts word by word for us. And they learn from large amounts of text, so more text than a human would read in their lifetime. So billions of words like news, books, websites, film subtitles, whatever you like. And uh, so the models are quite advanced. So uh, unless somebody really wants to know, then, then we probably won't go into the real details of, of how this works internally. But uh, there is something called deep learning and it can work with word similarity. So it has an idea that cinema and theater are more similar than a cinema and a horse. And I will now show uh, what it looks like when the dramaturge tries to generate the script. So uh, for example, uh, in one of the scenes, there is a robot and a boy and the dramaturge operating the system decided that, yeah, it would be nice for the robot to try to tell a joke. So what he entered is this line you can see. The boy says, can you tell me a joke? Please cheer me up. So this is human written. And then we just prompt the GPT-2 model to, to suggest the next word. And here it's just the word robot because well, it makes sense. And before it was robot speaking and generates the word can, the word I, and like that word by word, sentence by sentence, line by line, we can generate uh, the continuation. So the boy says, I think you are trying to make fun of me. And then please tell me a joke to cheer me up. And the robot complains, there is no funny joke. That's terrible, is there? I want to laugh. You can't, there is no funny joke. Please tell me a joke. Okay, well, when you are dead, when your children are dead, when your grandchildren are dead, I will still be alive. So, uh, so that's what you saw in the sample. And then the boy complains, it's not funny. And the robot says he cannot uh, tell a joke because he's still alive. So, uh, so that's uh, all based on, on uh, generating the text using the language model. And what the dramaturge has is some options of editing it. So at any point he could insert uh, some, some text of his own or he could discard the text generated and the system would generate another option. But yeah, that's it. And then it uh, was performed. And, and as you've heard, some people saw it. So, so maybe some of you have seen it too. And yeah, that's it for my part. So, so I showed this, just this part of the project. So how we generate theater scripts, but it's something similar that you will see in, in the other uh, presentation. So I give word to Piotr now. Thank you much, Rudolf. Uh, it was fantastic. And I have to say that the uh, quality of the uh, staging uh, and of the play was really uh, mind-blowing. It was really a, a great play to watch um, as it, when it was released uh, a few months ago. So um, as Tracy uh, said a few minutes ago, my name is Piotr Mirovsky, and uh, I have a day job as a research scientist in artificial intelligence. Uh, where a deep mind, where I collaborate with other scientists. Most recently, I worked with meteorologists on weather forecasting, and I've been using AI to build predictive models that can give us some understanding about the world. 
training algorithms to make predictions based on past historical data. A few years ago, I used to work on query automation for a search engine. You know, when you start typing a query, Autocomplete tries to finish the query for you. And it essentially uses a statistical language model that tries to make suggestions of the most likely query you're going to type. These suggestions are based on the statistics of previous searches, as well as some context, for instance, your location. If you ever get bored, you could try the city game by yourself on your phone. Type the beginning of a sentence, for instance, we are going to, and check what the predictive text train on general text and your own data comes up with. The reason why I brought this, uh, this example uh, of predictive text was because while working on the engineering and machine learning problem, I actually had an epiphany. But first, maybe I need to give a bit of context about me. So in parallel to my career in science, I've been training and performing as a theater actor and improvisation comedian, regularly performing in fringe theater productions. I particularly love the vulnerability that comes with improvisation. Improvisation in jazz music or on the theater stage relies, first of all, on practice. Performers also need to adapt to the changing context of a scene and to collaborate with other performers and with the audience. Researchers in computational storytelling uh, defined improvisation as real-time dynamic problem solving, whereas theater practitioners Keith Johnstone and Viola Spolin insisted on spontaneity with improvisation consisting in wait for the punchline, always doing the most obvious thing. Just like predictive text, just like any statistical language model. So here was the Eureka moment. In 2016, I did the most obvious thing, which was to combine programming skills and my passion for theater and build a show in which humans improvise on stage with robots. This picture was taken at the British Academy in early 2017, and it illustrates the system and the initial aesthetic of a show, a nerdy and vulnerable clown trying to converse with a toy robot that moves as it speaks via speech synthesis. Um, you can say I am wearing a microphone for speech recognition, um, and I built a chatbot around an AI system that I had designed. The AI, consisted of recurrent neural networks. So we are way before GPT-2, GPT-3 era. Um, and it was trained on the dialogue from 100,000 films, enough to cover for the diversity of scenic comedic situations that you can encounter in improvisation. I called it Alex because it's a gender neutral name and because it was the acronym for artificial language experiment. The audience, would give suggestions of scenes, and I tried to adapt and to improvise in response to whatever Alex was saying. During the process of creating Alex, I met Corey Mathewson, a like-minded researcher in AI and robotics 
as well as a seasoned improviser with the Rapid Fire Theatre in Edmonton, Canada. Corey had exactly the same idea and had done a show with a chatterbot represented by a humanoid avatar on, on screen. So even though we were living on opposite sides of the world, because Gary was in Canada, uh, we immediately started collaborating and became friends. So we founded Human Machine. And in early 2017, Corey and I produced and performed in a transatlantic artificial intelligence improv comedy show happening simultaneously in two theatres, one in London, one in Portland, Oregon, eight time zones apart, and involving a lot of robots, chatbots, and tech. It was a disaster. Speech recognition didn't work. The chatbots were generating nonsense, worse than usual, and one of the robots literally crushed and burned on the stage. You can see me uh, sweating profusely on those pictures, and the reviewer was unimpressed. And they wrote, never work with robots. We didn't listen. We kept tinkering and prepared more shows, performed at the Edinburgh and Edmonton Fringe Festivals with larger audiences, got a great review by Colin Mockery himself, the one from Whose Line Is It Anyway, as well as some enthusiastic press coverage in the New Scientist and New York Times, uh, probably building on the hype of AI and the, this very strange idea of bringing robots to theatre. But one of the greater things was that it was also time for us to share our project with friends, improvisers, and to cast professional actors to join us on stage. So let's see uh, Rue Fox. <laughs> so um, I, I, I was really pleased that you wanted to uh, see me again. We are going to the zoo. <laughs> oh, we're already there. <laughs> Can you not see? The, there's antelopes right there. Silly bugger. <laughs> um, so, I actually wanted to talk to you about something. Um, our previous date, I thought, went really well. Um, it's nice. <laughs> just nice. I mean, I, I, I kind of had a really good time, but you, you think it was just nice. But this morning, we were very sick. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 I we were very sick. Yeah, yeah, yes, that was a bit of a down note um, to, to the day, but at least we made it till the morning. Huh? I mean, Please go away. <laughs> All right. As Rudolf demonstrated in the first presentation, and as Ru uh, just demonstrated in this video, AI language models can generate rather absurdist, surreal script. And we noticed that it is actually the role of a human actor to give meaning to that text. So Corey and I founded in 2018 Improbotics, a theatrical troupe that performs a live Turing test. It would no longer be robots only, but also human actors who would deliver the AI-generated lines, adding 
timing, emotion, and subtext, just like the actors in When a Robot Writes a Play. We called those improvisers cyborgs. The difference between those improvisers and the actors of a scripted play is that they had no idea what they were going to say next. They were listening to that via an earpiece. And as it was delivered to them in real time, and sometimes they would even start saying a sentence without having finished listening to the whole sentence. And so they had to adjust and change their emotional reaction. And in the Turing test, the audience would need to tell apart cyborgs from the other human actors who would be basically in charge of trying to give meaning and to tell the story. To increase the quality of AI-generated dialogue, human controllers would manually curate lines produced by the chatbot. And I believe that human curation is one of the most important aspects of this work. We all know that statistical language models or just stochastic parrots of the data that we have been trained on, and that they do not have any understanding of the full context of what is happening on the stage, nor of the intentions of the actors. So we keep a human in the loop who chooses the most appropriate answers and also filters out the most offensive ones. And even though we started using much more powerful language models, such as GPT-3 by OpenAI, well, human curation still remains crucial for the show. Our theatre company organically grew to multiple locations around the world in London, Edmonton, Montreal, Stockholm, Antwerp, and close to 80 actors have been involved so far. Our aim is to produce quality shows that bridge the gap between the arts and the sciences and mix entertainment with science communication. A reviewer noted, more recently, if I had seen such a show like a kid, I would have paid more attention to science class, which was nice. So now let's see Niki Kholovsky being controlled by the AI and playing the role of a cyborg. Your family is my family too. Are you trying to get me? I am losing my mind. <laughs> That's a pretty brave girl in here. John. John. Sometimes I hate you, you know about John? You must be able to enjoy it. Father. <laughs> what? Please tell me how your mother is. <laughs> One of the most difficult things uh, when performing getting lines in real time from a chatbot is not to corpse and try to compose oneself. Um, when the pandemic struck, we moved our artistic practice online. Improbotics member Boyd Branch, he is on that side, currently graduating with a PhD in digital media design and a lecturer at Coventry University, designed and published at Sikkai software for teleimmersive improvisation that enables actors in front of green screens to be composed online in real time. Well, just like I'm trying to do at this moment and sometimes awkwardly duck out of the camera. So we used a more uh, complex version of that software to rehearse together while experiencing presence and to perform live improvisation online in virtual reality. We did a show uh, at Art AI 
which was essentially a gathering of improvisers connecting from Antwerp, Stockholm, London, and Leicester. Uh, we had uh, Tracy joining us to introduce the show. Let's watch a little extract. Starring Sarah, uh, Sarah Davis as the cyborg on the left, and on the right, uh, Holly Mallet as the human. I'm so worried. Everyone gets scared of things at first. You're right. You know what? You're always so positive, apart from the time you said that the best thing about owning a sheep was everyone being sad. <laughs> you might be surprised what you can do with them. Eat? <laughs> what mm -hmm. can you do with them? I mean, I'm vegan, so I'm not going to eat them. Sheep are very good pets. Well, that was the premise of this. The sheep likes to do what you want. Really? Mm -hmm. That's the best thing about a sheep. So here, Sarah, instead of listening to lines via a headpiece, was actually reading them on screen and picking and curating by herself what she would like to say, uh, which introduces some great ideas. What if we performed with a version of Google Glass, for instance? So we have been using uh, our practice of improvisation to try to explore various applications of creative AI and bring it on the stage. More recently, we've been combining augmented reality and image generation algorithms, such as VQ, GAN and CLIP, and have started exploring applications where actors are inspired and improvise in response to an image generated by AI. So, well, thank you for your attention. I just wanted to end with some questions. Anthropization of robots on the stage. How much should we anthropomorphize them if we don't use human performers? Improvisation. Is it a test for autonomy and adaptation? How do we build human in the loop and artist in the loop AI? How do we create the conditions for actors to feel present remotely in virtual reality? And I'm looking forward to what Marcel is going to say. And finally, a salty take, no robots can do theatres by themselves. And I'm looking forward to the debate. But anyway, first, Marcel, it's up to you. Thank you very much, Piotr. And uh, it's amazing how much uh, congruence is between your work and what we are doing. So um, I'm going to start by um, switching my background to um, some of the stuff that we did uh, during the last years. So Sabaraba is actually very human centric. What we're doing is actually a lot of different things. We're not bound to one genre, but we're actually working with ballet, we're working with opera, and we're working with theater. And here's one of the projects that we did during the pandemic where we brought together 30 pupils from Ireland and Germany on a virtual stage and gave them virtual reality headsets so they could come together and perform because as you all know during lockdown it was impossible to meet physically for these many people on stage so um, what we're really doing is we're looking through um, the kind of lens of technology and we're trying to use and apply it uh, with basically the human in the center. So we are doing very human-centered design approaches to all the things that we're doing. Second piece that you're seeing right now here is the cyber ballet. And uh, 
think we, we began slowly broaching the topic of artificial intelligence and its implications. And we were wondering how could we actually um, think about an AI that would try to understand what it means to be human. Our first thought was obviously there's something lacking here because it's a body to experience the space around us. And we were also seeing that um, with the advent of computer vision, machines are becoming much more aware of the surroundings. And we were wondering, like always, could we use art to kind of inspire a process where a machine would watch human body movement, ballet, could we incorporate uh, virtual reality? Because this was also a piece during the pandemic, we actually built a stage in virtual reality where people were entering the stage and could join us and have a look uh, at the stuff together in virtual reality whilst we weren't able to meet physically. Then we ventured on to create our first uh, AI-driven piece um, back then with uh, GPT-2. And we did quite the same as Piotr did. We um, built a system where you have a headset and you're entirely essentially remote controlled. We also used um, Stargan systems to generate the stage set. So we really try to think about how far can AI be taken into consideration when building a theater piece? How much control is still required from the director or the actors and actresses? And so we actually began, I would say, experimenting because that's most of the times what we're doing. We're really trying to use theater in a way as a sandbox, as a developer would say it, where we can use um, and uh, apply the faculties of human beings, which are very powerful, and um, use the AI basically to um, channel through the data and um, have them act it all out. And actors are, like Peter said, they're very beautiful um, pieces of, let's say, machinery that can react very quickly. And most of the actors and actresses that we worked with, uh, we really challenged them because uh, they didn't wait for the end of the sentence because they really did the real-time thing. For us, it's very central to kind of begin to understand how AI works and operates and what it really is. Because up to this point, some parts of it are actually a black box. And we're trying to kind of see um, certain um, abilities. We're trying to see certain um, fallacies and all that through art, through performance, and basically through the human being, which is very essential to us. So with the first piece with GPT-2, we actually um, try to minimize curation as, mu as much as possible. We really try to make uh, basically everything offered mainly by the AI itself. So we had many, many, many pieces. And the most beautiful thing is um, every piece that we do is an original, which means when you're coming to uh, visit one piece, one play, that, that will never happen again, basically. When you come next time, the system will generate something entirely new in real time. And the actors will also act it out way differently. And there's also a learning curve. When you have the same actors playing with the system over and over again, they get faster, they adapt better. They kind of understand also because we, we used a lot of speech synthesis programs. And we actually found out the more harsh the speech processing and synthesis is, the better. Um, we also dabbled with um, far more advanced systems that would synthesize very human voices with a lot of inflections and emotions but we actually found out that's bad. We actually have to have like a robot-like voice that we also heard from Piotr and uh, that, that works best. And now the last piece that we did, um, basically the human being is another, which is essentially um, a very central problem that we are dealing with because AI um, machine learning systems, they are not human beings. They are not thinking, they're not like dreaming. 
but we always tend to have these parallels uh, drawn and it's kind of dangerous. So what we're trying to do is actually, um, we do not put a computer on the stage. We also don't dress our actors up as robots or something like that, but rather we want them to be as raw as possible, to be as much in the moment as possible. And we um, also build a system where we can put in more players. Obviously this time we have three, we're even thinking about 10 or 20 because that's also totally possible. And the dynamics they develop are very interesting. And we even um, got so far to also give them sensor systems so that we can have like feedback from them, looped back into the system that they then control the stage and the lighting. Because um, also as, as Piotr tries to say, there is a, the question of inspiration, the question of the stage set, the question of the mood that a scene generates. Because the text, when it comes from the machine, it has a certain meaning, but when it's, gets played out, it actually gets activated by the actors and actresses, and then it is real, then it becomes real, because there's this thing that we always seek meaning in the most meaningless things even. So down here, you can even see that we use the system to generate a choreography, for example, or a dance, because words, we, we even question ourselves, is words like the source code of theater? Can we, can we go so far to say this? And can stuff be directed by the actors and actresses themselves on the stage? Do we really need these roles? So we're really challenging the, the structure of these things. And then we also had a lot of learnings. A lot of beautiful things came up because there's a question of responsibility because our actors and actresses, they act out the text. They don't question the text. And when they do that, it's quite impressive how far they go. Even with stuff that normally might get uh, censored in a way, they, they take that and work that. And But because they always tell us, uh, I didn't say that, I didn't mean that, I'm only an actor and the system generated that, which is, again, quite a big question. And the other thing that we really liked is um, some of them told us that now, as they're connected to the system, they're actually not doing what they are used to do. They're not learning um, all of the words of the play in their head. And um, they're also not learning the positions and the emotions, but rather now they really need to access their inner core palette of acting and they need to act that out. And um, that works beautifully. And, and the last part um, about what we're working now on is obviously we have a interface that basically uses um, audio where we have then the text um, injected basically in, into the ears. But we're going further now. We are thinking about using augmented reality and virtual reality to also give them uh, access to the vast amounts of dialogue choices and options. And you see just a very crude SDK prototype where you basically would have options to select things. You could see the other people because it would be multiplayer, virtual reality, or augmented reality, obviously. And um, so far, the tests that we did and the, the systems that we built are looking very promising because we're also thinking a bit like Piotr, we uh, could make this thing a toolkit and basically bring theater and AI to schools or to other institutions and also to theaters, obviously, because what we're thinking about is making these very complex things um, more open. And we're really trying to say to people, even if you are thinking AI is complex, it can be very simple, it can be very easy to use and can be applied in very fun ways. And um, that's actually what we're all about. Um, I have to excuse myself, I forgot to start my timer, but I think my, my video is going to end uh, at 10 minutes and I hope it's okay if I stop a little early, because I think it was also quite a lot of stuff to digest. So thank you. Well, thank you very much for some fascinating presentations there, all of you. Um,
I think we've got two quite, uh, well, complementary areas for sure, but some fairly different applications of the technology that we can kind of discuss and talk about. Um, and I think what's, what comes through from what you're saying is that you're all very obviously working with AI as a, as a collaborative process with, with most definitely the, the, the human in the loop. Um, what I would like to start by asking, um, and please do drop your questions into, into the, um, the chat for me as well. Um, what I would like to start by asking though, and I think this is probably a question mainly for Rudolf and perhaps Piotr, is, um, you know, what, what, you're, um, what you're doing here is um, telling, uh, you know, trying to portray a story where you're very, very much putting the AI on the stage. And, and I'm wondering, what, what do you believe um, the audience understands of the role of the AI on the stage from your experience of it? Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, but in our work, we actually complement the, the show with, with a discussion afterwards where we discussed that with the spectators. And uh, obviously it's interesting that we can definitely say which lines were human written, which lines were auto-generated, but uh, it seems the spectators cannot really distinguish that. So they keep asking, so in this line, was it generated or was it human written? And, and we tell them and it's like, okay, so this joke, this must be human written. No, no, this was generated. So uh, so it's, I, I would say that most of the spectators have like this kind of fascination with, with uh, the system to, uh, to see that it can really generate things that seem meaningful, but, but obviously as Piotr said, uh, there was a lot and lot of work like afterwards to, to like put some sense into the dialogues which do not make uh, much sense themselves. So uh, yeah, so it's, it's a lot of uh, showmaking in the end, of course, like the, as, as, as uh, all of us agree, if you just take the generated text, uh, well, it doesn't work by itself. You, you have to do something with it. Piotr, do you want to comment? Um, yes, so we try to do to achieve this in two different ways. Uh, this sort of ex explanation, intuitive explanation uh, for the audience. The first one is by weaving exp uh, some sort of pedagogic explanation of how the system works throughout the show, taking advantage of the fact that improv often comes with a compare who basically is hosting the show and so can introduce the next bit. And so in this case, uh, I often play that role and I try to inject some nuggets of information about the process of curation or the process of training AI. Um, Corey and I had a show where we literally had a 15 minute back and forth chat between the two of us explaining how the system works before we engage into AI. Uh, we both like TED style talks. However, some other members of our cast who do science communication have a different point of view and they uh, recommended us to do a little bit more of show rather than tell. Uh, so we've been trying to rephrase that by finding analogies, uh, illustrations of cats and dogs uh, to, to explain this is the usual example of training a classifier between images of cats and dogs. 
the second, and that rebounds directly on what uh, Rudolf said, we actually run typically a Turing test at the end of a show. So during the show, the mo most, for most of the scenes, the audience knows who is using AI lines. Uh, at the end, we ask all the cast to line up and they have to improvise a poem line by line. One of them is taking lines from the AI. And so here, uh, what happens is that there is a, a play between the uh, cyborg who tries to deliver the lines with as much assurance as they can, and the humans who basically try to do absurdist theater uh, uh, to, to essentially talk like a robot in order to introduce the audience into error. And the audience guesses correctly less than half of the time. And of course, it gets more and more difficult with better language models like GPT-3. Mm. Yes, indeed. Um, well, that, that is really fascinating. The, the question I've got um, for you, Marcel, is, is kind of slightly different, which is that the fact that what you're portraying there is, is very much an idiosyncratic, you know, an, an individualized experience for each audience member. Um, and the question I got for you really is, to what extent can you control the quality of the experience um, for each audience member when it's so customizable at audience level? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, that is actually like the key question because sometimes, um, as we all know, the system goes into the absurd or sometimes it also goes into, um, let's say, a violent extravaganza. And, and so um, we, we decided to have Again, a factor of human in the loop system, where you actually also think about the texts that are coming up and you try to um, accommodate to certain things because the synthesis, the, the beauty of it, the system itself generates the text very, very fast, but the speech synthesis needs to be at a certain level so that the actors and actresses can still comprehend. Sometimes it's quite amazing how fast human beings can actually just hear something and then act it out in split seconds, essentially. But there, in between that, you have some gaps left where you can have actually a moment where you stop something. Or um, there's also this big loop problem sometimes that systems tend to end up in an infinite loop. But we then also try to stop it. But there's nothing yet that is like we are working on it, obviously. Maybe we're all working on it. But there's nothing yet that where you just press play. And then you're guaranteed to work it out. But what we're also not doing is we're not pre-curating the stuff, which means we're not building an entire co-created piece together with the system. But rather the thing of the real time is that there are some aesthetics of some phenomenon that only appear in this real-time interaction because human beings are very biased. They look at the text, they always correct it, they always censor. And so we actually also make the time that you have to censor something or alter something very little, very small. So, and, and that's also a very interesting thing the actors and actresses said to us is when the system is working well, they enter something that we all call the flow state where they don't have time anymore to think about how to act out the text, but where they actually like become this extension of the system and act it out. And they have to use their facilities, the stuff that they learn uh, basically in school to, to, to act it out. And they like that kind of um, feeling that they have because that's actually something that is entirely new. I think that you're totally on the wire in, in a way. And we also found out that some people now don't want to learn anything uh, anymore. They just want to have this thing in their ear, even if it's a natural text. 
it comes from a human author. They just like, why don't we always do this by karaoke and improv? Interesting. Well, you know, I, I guess really where I was going with that is the fact that for certainly for Rudolf and for Piotr, what you're doing is breaking what I would call the fourth wall. So you're actually kind of going between the performance and the explanation of the performance. And in a way, what you're also describing there, Marcel, is a similar kind of thing where um, because of the presentation of it, that that kind of wall is broken a little bit. You're dropping out of the, the performance periodically, although as I think as um, all of you are potentially saying that the, the better these AIs get, the, the, the less clear uh, it will be to the audience what is the AI and what is um, uh, the performer. Um, what I was going to ask you um, is, well, to kind of related to that point, um, and actually to pick up on a question that um, somebody's dropped in the chat, which is about um, effectively the, the role of anthropomorphization of the, of the AI. The question in the chat is, um, if you change the AI voice to a more robotic voice, um, is there a, an uncanny valley effect? But, um, you know, to Piotr's question, um, at the end of his presentation is what's the role of anthropomorphization of the AI or the robot on stage? Um, so tell me, what have you got in terms of how do you think the, the role of the anthropomorphized uh, AI, um, how does that play out for you? What do you need to do with that? Um, thank you, Tracy. So to directly answer the first question about changing the voice, um, well, one of the constraints is that the actors need to actually understand what the yes. system says. So in uh, when we have poor speech synthesis, we we basically look around and sometimes there is a if there is a screen behind that displays the lines, we just look behind and it kind of slows down the performance. So it's better to have clear, distinctive text that you're used to. So there is a, I mean, there is a reason why people work on making better speech synthesis. Uh, it's just clarity. But now, we, um, in the first versions of the show, uh, Corey was just working with an avatar on the screen, and I was just working with voice, nothing else. And we thought that this would give us lots of freedom to, to build a better narrative, but we realized that there was something missing on which to focus our attention. And we even considered using literally just a, a, a ping pong ball or a teddy bear, anything to represent that entity with, with which we are improvising. So once we brought the robot, uh, Someone in the audience, an improviser, tweeted, oh my god, it's fantastic! Now there is a, a robot in the show. Uh, and we just realized that maybe that was, that's, what was, that's what, what was missing all along, is to have some form of representation of the AI on the stage. Does it need to be extremely anthropomorphic? Not necessarily. Um, there is a whole uh, field of uh, study in computer theater comparing uh, and androids by uh, um, Hiroshi Ishiguro, like in the play Sayonara, with slightly more boxy robots, like in My Square Lady. And people can 
and people can attribute emotions even to a KUKA robotic arm. I mean, there are lots of dance pieces with, uh, which are very moving, where there is a relationship between on stage between a dancer and something that has nine degrees of freedom, and it's perfect. Uh, Rudolf, do you want to have a go at that one? Yeah, so uh, so we uh, actually originally we thought about having a robot uh, on stage, like like a, a real robot, and basically we had to drop it because we didn't have any any robotics experts on the team. So uh, <laughs> we just realized, yeah, this would be like too much work. But uh, like our original vision was, yeah, so let's let's have one actor as the robot, like talking, speaking, moving. Uh, interacting with the others and then we realized yeah maybe the the time is not mature yet for that so uh, uh, like the ideal goal would be yeah let's generate the script and not have maybe any actors let's let's just uh, push it to robots who acted out on the stage but we realized yeah that's probably not not possible at current time to to satisfy anybody but uh, yeah so then we opted for for having uh, an actor that well uh, tries to to play in a, in a robotic way but uh, it was uh, yeah it was kind of to to have an excuse for for a lot of the lines which are not very uh, reasonable so that when the character saying them is a robot who who is a bit weird so then it kind of makes sense in it but uh, yeah but we were thinking about all kinds of things like yeah having even some abstract uh representations of artificial intelligence like somebody said that in in the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy there is something like a deep shade of blue or whatever is the entity so it would be nice to just have something blue flashing there or something so uh, i think that yeah we did not explore this uh, too much and and i'm uh, keen on watching what the the other guys are doing because because i think they're more than willing to go into these directions Mm. easier probably to do with the gaming technology that the the um the other two are doing um marcel what is your thought on this yeah we, we have a kind of radical stance on that one we, we don't want to have any kind of thing on there not even a kuka robot or a teapot or something like that because human beings are masters at thinking about things and how they can kind of have a soul and have a, a thinking of their own and so on and so forth. Some people like their cars very much and talk to them. So when we try to do this, we are actually going um, the way that was mentioned. If we need a presence, it is a color. It is the stage in its entirety that might light up. We call it the Oracle, which is basically the system where you can ask questions then, but then it goes clearly off into the path of religion, because I still believe that people have a kind of image for God, but it's still very open and it's very individual, which is great in, on, in theater, because we just don't want people to always compare the system to the human being, because then we always have this stalemate in a way, and, and, and it's kind of boring, to be honest. And so we don't want to, to have the system represented in any kind of physical form, but rather in an ethereal form if we tend to do it. But we also kind of tone it down. But there is a kind of need and want for people in the audience to, to have this contact, to see this. But the, the main thing what we are focusing on is actually the text itself. We don't want to have anything that actually takes us too far away from the text and the acting of the human beings, obviously. And th these are like the main components. So we always struggle to not 
add things on top because it's very easy and it's also it's a lot of fun to to make a scene bigger and, and brighter but um sometimes even like the whispered text with one person is enough you don't need to have a fully lit stage for that because when the text works and human being does what he does best acting then uh it, it can be totally fine and it can be great hmm. okay um i'm just picking up a question um from Tommy in the audience. Um, and the question is, how, uh, how well does the robot write a narrative that can tell a story? Now, I think what you've, you've all basically said is that, you know, it's, it doesn't necessarily tell a complete story and it's, a, it's about you guys adapting what is being said. But what's your view on where the technology is at the moment? Is it, is it getting uh, acceptable to the to the level that it's able to tell a story at the moment. So our experience is it's not very good at that actually yet. Uh, it's yeah, it's still good like locally. So the the lines follow each other in a sort of meaningful way, but it's hard to control that it gets somewhere eventually. So uh, in a story, we would like it to have a start and then to develop in some way and to end in a specific way. But uh, the generator takes it just tends to go on and on and, and go on to different topics or go into a loop. So it's it's hard to generate a, a full story. It's not impossible. Uh, we, we are doing some experiments on that. And yeah, if the story is reasonable length, yeah, we can get some somewhat meaningful stories of like one page or shorter but it's like you generate 10 of them and maybe one of them seems to make a bit of sense so uh it still seems hard i don't know what the others have experienced piatra do you want to say your experience um so it is absolutely horrible at generating any uh sense bearings uh narrative I don't think that GPT-4, GPT-5, and many other language models, many, much more advanced, will be able to generate uh, a story that makes sense. And this is probably because of um, an intrinsic problem in the formulation of a machine learning problem, which is those systems are very good at interpolating between data points. So at the, in the best case scenario, uh so currently we are let's say at the level of a polit political speech so it doesn't really make, make sense but someone listening in the crowd can get happy and excited about it sorry but it's true <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. uh, so but it doesn't make sense at all if you really think about it now let's say in, in a few years uh we can have systems that work in a hierarchical level and that generates different plot points etc they would still be only interpolating between existing stories and we in a way have a limited number of stories that have been written because we are accountable number of humans um, what's interesting is extrapolation something that machine learning is not good at and extrapolation means that suddenly you have someone like um, sarah k uh, who appears and who writes a story uh, a play without uh, uh, denominated actors and roles. It's just a stream of, of sentences uh, and it's extremely gripping. Um, and it's about, so I'm talking about psychosis for 41. I don't know, don't know if I got the numbers right, uh, but there is a story in, in there 
but that comes from something uh, that is a description of the existing world uh, and of the state of the mind of the author, which an, an AI system is not. Mm. And Marcel, what's your thought? Yeah, I can just um, agree on this. I sometimes compare it to a little bit like a child with a very low attention span can sometimes spit out genius words of wisdom and is very clear and sometimes um, it just swerves into an entirely different sector of very interesting things. But it's also interesting that sometimes you only need to alter certain words, like single words need to be added sometimes to change entirely the meaning of, of some blocks. And then you have these building blocks and then you can put them together. And, and sometimes, um, when we work with that, when we work like that, we can like find a ways. I mean, the GPT-3 works with prompts, which means you kind of feed it the beginning of something. You can even like give it a little bit more or less what you want. And then you need to test. So it's a lot of testing and testing to see, but it's far from automatic. And, and I also believe in a way, like, like Kurtor also said, it will be a, a far off place once we get there, but at least sometimes you can define characters and give characters certain specific character traits, like a grumpy person in the forest. And sometimes it's quite wonderful what kind of text the, the system can get, generate when it's contained in a character. But when you now take this character and try to put it in a story in an entire of narrative, then um, things begin to get very chaotic. But um, what Piotr said is also interesting because I kind of feel like the system in itself is also a story. It's also a narrator. It can Even if you would press, press play and just let it roll, people will still find a kind of meaning in there. And some people would be, uh, some people are really shocked sometimes when you see the text that it generates, they're really like, uh, that, that I didn't think that would be possible. And we even, and with our first piece, had a real huge problem that people didn't believe us anymore, that we didn't wrote these texts. They looked at the, they, they listened to it and they, we had to actually show them the, the machine output. And so we also had to kind of like talk a little bit more about what is synthetic and what is non-synthetic. So the, the line is blurry. But like, you, like we, we all agree on, it's still not there. There's not this one button pressing machine that spits out uh, Harry Potter novels, not yet. I'm sure there's going to be a whole bunch of people, actors, writers, directors, producers, whatever, that are probably very delighted to hear what you've got to say there. Um, but, but to that point, are they uh, threatened? Do they feel threatened when you um, work with them? Uh, in terms of what the AI is capable of? Do your colleagues feel threatened? I can I could just continue to say yes. Actually, whenever we come with virtual reality, augmented reality, when we come with AI and all of these technologies that seem to be extremely complex and uh, opaque in a way, um, people feel offended and uh, threatened by these systems. And the, the worst is that we, we aren't these companies. We aren't open AI. We are actually tinkerers, we are artists. We're trying to explore these things and actually try to make people talk about it. Because you can only talk about topics where you have like a little understanding at least of what's going on. And we meet most people with a level of understanding of Terminator 2 where they're thinking there's Skynet and there's humans and we're gonna all die. So uh, we slowly chisel away all of these uh, things and thoughts and uh, we're trying to tell them it's actually not that bad it's actually it's it can be a tremendous tool to work with 
And we also should kind of know what the big players are doing there with AI. And the only way to do this is actually to be a little bit political and open up the processes and talk with people. And actually they should leave the theater with more questions and not answers, because that's the thing I think that's required here. Piotr, do you want to pick that up? Yes, I think that one way of seeing that menace is the same as comparing it uh, to plagiarism. And I think plagiarism is a good uh, framework. Well, since given that those systems are basically good at imitating something that looks like the real thing, uh, and we get better at it, obviously, with more data, more training. Um, the the question that they uh, they ar that arise are about the um, the importance of original work and um, whether we value more uh, something that looks like uh, a, a piece of art or something that actually is an original piece of art. So I hope that. One of the questions that uh, people will start uh, to walk away with uh, after seeing such shows is what can I do not to be um, to be actually more human and not uh, to have uh, my activity uh, imitated by a machine. Fascinating, Rudolf. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, we meet a lot of people who are uh, frightened by artificial intelligence. And I think we should be afraid of artificial intelligence, but most people I meet are afraid kind of in a wrong way. So they are afraid of things that probably are not going to happen and they are not afraid of real dangers. So, uh, so what we're actually also trying to do with our show is trying to kind of educate the people to show them what the AI really is, what it can do, what it cannot do, how we can use it. And we're kind of trying to advocate the idea that it's something, the AI is something that's going to be here and then we should learn to cooperate with. So uh, we shouldn't give control to AI because this will go to uh, crazy places, but we shouldn't also just completely throw it away because uh, it can help in certain situations. So that people should understand that uh, it's good for learning uh, these simple things, repetitive stuff, these things that are kind of boring for humans. So this is what the AI can pick up very well, but uh, the humans are great in their yeah, creativity or improvisation, and this is their place. So they should find always a way to, to cooperate, to leverage the advantages of both sides. Uh, and it's really interesting that you all say pretty much the, the, the same thing. And actually, it's it's also the reason that we put the Art AI Festival on in the way that we do. It's about showcasing the, the capabilities and limitations of the technology, but trying to expose um, creative practice by working in collaboration with AIs as well. Question for you all then, has your perception of your own creative practice changed as a consequence of working with the AIs in the way that you have? Who wants to pick that one up first? Okay, it's easy for me because uh, I'm not a theater practitioner. So uh, I thought, yeah, it doesn't uh, influence my work in any way. But 
then I was doing an interview for a newspaper and they thought, okay, we send you the questions and what if the AI answered the question? So I thought, yeah, let's try this out. And we generated the questions to the answers from the journalist. And I was quite surprised that a lot of the answers were pretty good. So uh, I was like, yeah, I could answer that myself. That's, that's fine. So I could maybe save my time by, uh, by uh, answering only, only the interesting questions or something. But uh, yeah, so uh, yeah. It's it's fun. I, I think it's uh, uh, it's it's fun to play with. It it doesn't like, yeah. It it gives new ideas definitely. Piotr, <laughs> uh, do you want to have a go? I can just say that I've been using that opportunity of trying something very silly, improvising with a robot to actually learn about theatre. Decide to go to drama school part time while working uh, on AI during the day. Uh, and uh, learned from uh, people I've been encountering on the stage from theatre directors. So all I all I realize is actually how little I knew, and how much there was to learn and to explore. I did learn also about the curiosity uh, in the audiences and in the um, uh, among the cast and performers, and the fact that. Um, many of those uh many of the questions that uh my colleagues and, and i are dealing with on a daily basis at work can uh, arise spontaneously as well um, in the audience for instance um, questions about the uh, reward system for training agents uh, people were wondering for instance if it would make sense to reward uh, the chatbot for generating laughs and uh, they were standing to find uh, everything that could possibly go wrong with such a reward system and that curiously mirrored uh, what research scientists in uh, AI safety have been working on the structuring the rewards for reinforcement learning so what essentially I learned is how much of us know about their own craft and how much uh, common sense and vision they can bring to what I am doing in my day job as well. Mm. Um, and I also wanted to add, I guess, something to the previous question um, about this role of AI and plagiarism. I realized that, uh, as I was thinking about that question, that the best thing that AI can be is essentially a search tool that shows and, and helps to pre-select some possible uh, choices and colleagues of mine uh, working on protein folding uh, have essentially discovered that they made up a system that generates predictions and then not all of those predictions are perfect but that but the the task of the computational biologists and experiment uh, on the actual biologists have been simplified in some way because they don't have to spend five years analyzing a single protein, they can actually try uh, to the few suggestions made by the machine and see if maybe one of them makes sense. Mm. So AI essentially should be kept at the level not of a decision machine, not a decision tool, but rather a, a sort of um, tool that provides some slightly more restrained set of choices. Of course, under the assumption that we, we know uh, that those choices are made by a machine. Mm. Yes, really good points. 
Um, Marcel, do you want to tackle that one as well? Yeah, um, maybe quickly. The thing that I've just learned is um, technology is all fine and good, but once it comes together with human beings, with creativity and um, a kind of keen sense of uh, understanding and, and trying things out, the, the stronger actually human beings get in comparison to the technology. The more, when, whenever you actually use the technology, the more you destroy the myths, the more you actually see it as, as a small thing that it is, but also you see the potential for your own like world, for your own reality. Because at another AI conference, I also told people, there's a certain disadvantage. I mean, in the beginning, we were all starting from a point where you have like the rich and the poor people. Later on in life, I said to people that your internet connection speed might actually have a huge impact on the way you can work. And, and so obviously there's now another factor and the last one that I'm working now with every day is artificial intelligence and machine learning systems. And I sometimes tell the people that now I have kind of a superpower because I can now um, enlarge images. I can now generate human beings that aren't existent and I can put them in a play and I can generate short stories together with my friends on my mobile phone that is connected to a very large computer grid that generates the text and so on and so forth whilst other people might not know that and they don't even know that it exists and so on and so forth. So um, that's the stuff where I, I, I found out that most of the stuff that seems to be so complicated can be taught, it can be shared. It can also help you just revisit your own thinking about these things and, and find new ways to utilize that stuff. For example, it was just a beauty to see GPT-3 generating a, a choreography for dance. And then the people began to dance on, and, and had this abstractness of dance. And I, I just thought sometimes I um, am quite wary of having people offer things because we tend to also follow certain lines and we have a dramaturgy and stuff like that. The machine doesn't have that. Sometimes it can be very refreshing. Even if the, the sense is lacking, there's a new perspective. There's a new, let's say, freshness to it that, that I enjoy very much. And it just, as a creative person, gets me inspired in a way and other people also inspired. And, uh, and so that's basically that, where, where we always tend to, it will never stop in a way. We will always continue researching and working with these technologies. And also we will intertwine them, but we will always do it with the human being at the center and not at the, at the outer outskirts, basically. So it's, Basically, that's, that's the, the, the fun, most challenging and uh, most gratifying part of it all. Thank you. Um, I think we have just um, time. I'm, I'm hoping, Prem, that we've got time for just one more question, which I really wanted to ask in terms of your experience of um, getting your work commissioned. And, you know, what can you sort of mention a little bit about um, how easy it is to um, uh, to place your work in um, in theatres today, uh, and what your advice might be to others trying to work with these technologies going forwards. Now, I think it's going to be our last question. Um, who would like to start that? I, I mean, I mentioned it in the context of you've all got shows running. So tell us about those shows. Tell us how easy it is to get them into um, into theater. Piotr, start, start for us. Oh, so very quickly, um, I, I've 
traditionally just been applying to festivals, uh, to fringe festivals, and relying either on a curation system by individual theatres who accept, who are curious about uh, what's going to be brought on stage. <coughs> Very uh, recently, we had a great interaction with um, the uh, director of the Leicester Comedy Festival, and um, maybe something will happen uh, at that time. Uh, the Leicester Comedy Festival, uh, which will be in uh, February 2022. Yeah. So in that case, that curiosity uh, was no longer initiated by me, but actually coming from someone who had seen the show. Demand led, actually. I think that's that's what we can say. It's created your show had kind of created so much interest that people wanted to see more of it, which is which is really great to see, actually. Um, Marcel, what, you, what about your experiences here? In Germany, we have a lot of uh, funding opportunities um, that actually, a lot is maybe the wrong word, but we have some funding opportunities at least, and some of them are also very um, keen on having digital experiences in a way. Um, the pandemic has obviously also brought uh, some theaters into a field where they begin to think about the ways how they've dealt with physical presence with streaming and all of these things. And uh, we obviously go quite above and beyond streaming, but we are we are also trying to kind of slowly convince the people that there's a lot of, a lot to be gained. Most times we actually want theaters to even think about having like a lab or laboratory to experience and test things out together because there are many people who are very keen in theaters, uh, especially actors and actresses. They like to play, obviously, and they like to play with technology as well. So, um, we are still at the stage that we don't get so many people actually inviting us to places, but we still have to apply for funding and then we co collaborate with the places that we're playing with. But um, it, it, it feels at least that it's getting better. And um, it also, I mean, like you said, people see what we're doing. They see that there's a substantial thing going on here. And that it's because sometimes in the arts, you have also the problem that you can actually just tell people that you're doing something with something. And then people are not the wiser because they can't really check is it entirely artificially or is there a real substantial thing going on with, for example, programming the stuff, I mean, real time applications and so on and so forth. But once you get people um, interested, then the ball gets slowly rolling. And I mean, we're doing this now for several years. And, uh, and the most beautiful thing is um, the world around us is also progressing all the time. So for us, it was from jumping from GPT-3 to GPT-4 was a tremendous leap and in, in what short amount of time. And also, um, I mean, we're playing with toys here. Some people said that it's a $5 million training system that was used to generate uh, GPT-3. So that's, that's a very expensive toy to play with. But um, that also makes it so tremendously beautiful to wake up in the morning and see that things have been updated, that new things came out and that we now have new tools and new, new toys essentially to play with. And, uh, and we, we sometimes joke that we would even say with that, if we don't get a real physical theater, then we build our own in virtual reality and invite people to come. And uh, so there's, um, there's always like a silver lining essentially for us. Yes, and, and where can we access some of your work online now? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good point because um, we, we work so much and we create so many things that we haven't still built like a distribution system or a pipeline and put it into, we're, we're beginning to put more on uh, the platforms of Oculus because they've also began slowly to open up more to experimental stuff. 
but also there is also there's another front where stuff needs to be standardized and i would love to have a portal for cultural stuff and there are, there are little websites like itch.io that have these places where because what, what are we doing is this a game or is this an experience there's even no words yet for some of these things that we're building here and we need to build our own language for them so um so we're still basically very much in production and so most of the times you actually have to come and we are, but we are also always thinking about um, having stuff in cyberspace and, and to talk about it. It's sometimes very hard to get people to understand that there's a requirement, for example, for the headset or that they need to have that MacBooks don't work and stuff. So this with technology is sometimes a lot of uh, stepping stones you have to go through until you reach the goal. Yeah, so we're still I think working on this. VR is always going to be a barrier at the, uh, until it becomes more mainstream, I think. And, and Rudolf, what's... Um, yeah, uh, so, so we have a theater on the team. So, uh, so uh, they just joined, and they basically joined the project because they said they don't believe that it would be possible to to stage the play. So, uh, so from them it was like, yeah, let's let's prove it that it's not possible. And then they realized, okay, maybe it's possible with some work. But uh, yeah, so for them it was like really a controversial thing to do. And uh, I heard that the Czech theater scene like everybody knows about it, everybody finds, finds it's really controversial. Uh, but, <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, we've, we've had some, some, uh, some interest. Uh, so I think so far uh, you can only see the play in, in the Schwanda Theater in Prague, uh, but uh, there might be some, some other shows. And what we're definitely planning to do with uh, our system is to, uh, to have an online demo of, of the system for generating the scripts so that everybody can uh, generate their own script. Actually, it's already in display, uh, the, the demo at actually the Goethe Institute in Prague. So uh, if you happen to visit. Uh... <laughs> Thank you. Well, um, I'm conscious of time. Um, i just like to say thank you very much to, um, to Rudolf, to Piotr and to Marcel for the fascinating discussion this evening. And the insight into all your work. It sounds absolutely amazing. Um, I really look forward to seeing the next developments of it. And on that, I'll hand you back to Prem. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, I would just like to echo uh, what Tracy has just said, uh, and thank you all of the, the panelists for, I have to say quite amazing, but also sophisticated uh, insight of the, the AI and implications in, in theater and i personally kind of wonder when the time will come when the ai might kind of immerse into the human reality into, into one entity but i guess that would be a subject or topic for uh, another discussion over a glass of wine or, or beer uh jake really invite you so again thank you tracy for the wonderful uh chairing the panel uh thank you to uh to, to piotr uh marcel and, and and rudolf and as we are concluding the unique ai science cafe series for 2021 thank you to all the partners in with us throughout the year and uh i wish all of you have a wonderful evening and clearly we will continue with these discussions on this groundbreaking and interesting topics on technology and interaction with culture and art. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.